0: This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in work and artwork in life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is entitled The Day Job. Oh, I wonder if that title makes some people cringy or... <laughs> puzzled maybe and i suppose i bring that up because i know not too long ago you know as recent as maybe seven or eight years ago which it it feels like a long amount of time and then in the course of things it's also not (laughs) um i would have wondered why an art podcast would be doing an episode about that and maybe even based on some of the context of the episodes in this podcast, people might wonder that, or maybe not. Um, but I know I would have wondered that. And I suppose I would have wondered that because for me, a lot of the more common components of a market economy like the day job, fe- like, it feels like it runs counter to what I'm trying to do as an artist. Um, especially on the t- on the heels of last week's episode, Art Kid, where we talked a little bit about the motivations of your kid and what your kid is <laughs> and w- w- how the kid functions. I mentioned the kid has no interest in bills and what other people think and what the economy wants, which is why the kid is so dangerous to the status quo in the world and so maybe based on that it kind of feels like that there's almost this diametrical opposition between what we're here to do what we're here to make with our kid with something bigger and capitalism and I've I, I talk about capitalism as a dirty thing often <laughs> in this podcast and so I wanted to do this episode and step back from that a little bit and create some nuance a little bit because while I do have those feelings around the system that we have on the planet because because generally speaking y'all capitalism is a problem. It may be well and true that it up until now like we're we're definitely in late stage capitalism. Like what we're experiencing globally is that (laughs) and I'm not an economist and I cannot speak even, even remotely intelligent, remotely intelligently. Is that maybe not an eloquent way of putting it, (laughs) but I don't have an intelligence on this topic, um, And so in regards to my commentary on capitalism, take what resonates with you and leave the rest. But I think in some ways, sometimes when we know less about a thing, we can also know more about a thing. And this metaphor is probably a crude one, but maybe in some ways also an act one. Um, This past weekend, we were going to a wedding, my husband and I, and we haven't, y'all, we haven't been out with adults later than 8 p.m in forever probably since before Brayden was born (laughs) and we were excited about it and I had spent a disproportionate amount of time planning what I was gonna wear I I booked a blowout to get my hair done I was gonna do my makeup I wanted to feel like my old self and my old self would have you know jazzed up to the nines before Brayden was born you know now it's joggers and buns and all that and I I, I fully embrace that I love athleisure I embrace it <laughs> and I was very excited and so much so that I had like five outfits and I couldn't decide and I have five different kinds of shoes and I was starting to feel like maybe I should call a girlfriend and send her photos and and then I realized no go to your husband and Jason is the anti-fashion right he's he's anti-fashion jason would have gladly gone in jeans and sneakers to this wedding right like he he only has a suit because we got married y'all like (laughs) and he and he actively resists wearing this suit unless i ask um and then the compromise for wearing the suit to the wedding was that he put on his all birds with it. (laughs) And, you know, we're in, we're in Austin, so it completely worked. Um, so I'm like going to Jason with all these outfits. And the thing that's really interesting about going to Jason with outfit opinion off like asking for outfit opinion is that he's weirdly really good at it. And it's because he has no interest in it. It's almost like because he has such little information about fashion that he's able to really hone in on what works in a way that's better than a girlfriend. Like I've sent girlfriends photos before of different outfits. I remember the last time I did it was when we were getting our pregnancy photo shoot before Braden was born and I sent a girlfriend like five different photos and I got like a novel back in my text and it was actually unhelpful. I just needed someone to say that one. (laughs) But because my girlfriend had so much fashion context you know, she wanted to share it with Jason. It's just like very easy. (laughs) And so maybe that's what this podcast is going to be a little bit like today, right? I don't have a lot of information on the economy, but I do think in some ways that's a superpower, right? Like maybe sometimes the less intelligence we have around certain topics affords us certain capacities around those topics. And so I don't know a whole lot about capitalism or market economies. I just simply don't. But I do know it's not working. And I think most of us can know that too. And while I don't know a lot of the subtleties about economics, I do know that one of the core principles of capitalism is that it requires indefinite and perpetual growth. If you're not growing in capitalism, you're dying, right? It's why like, when you start to read articles or listen to videos or podcasts about business, they'll frame a business's success in those terms. Interestingly, there's been some stuff in the news about Italy because Italy um, has this very different perspective on business as a country, Um they're, they haven't prioritized growth in a long time. There are ideas baked into the zeitgeist of Italy that prioritizes family and long-term relationships with its employees and, and has put growth kind of on the back burner. And there's a lot of you know economic criticism for that because Italy's economy is not doing well. And interestingly, I don't know if it's that simple. Like, I feel like in some ways Italy might have it right and the rest of the world has it wrong, <laughs> but because Italy's the minority, their economy is paying for it. You know, um, we live in a finite system and so perpetual growth in a finite system has another name, and that name is cancer <laughs> um, We are cancer of the earth. we are growing beyond that's that's what cancer does to the human body it's what we're doing to the planet it's why we there's increasing numbers of people knowing that that system has to change if we're going to stay here right. And so I've talked about, that That was a tangent, but I've talked about that on this podcast. And I've talked about capitalism as a negative thing. And so I suspect that some artists listening to this can relate. You know, before I started working for myself, I had this really toxic impression of that system. Because it is toxic. It is cancerous. It's also what we have... And so I want to talk a little bit today about the ways that it. not only is it possible to work with the system that we have, but also important to work with the system that we have as artists. And I want to talk specifically about one component of the economic worlds that we live in, and that is the day job. And I want to talk a little bit about... S- some work that I was exposed to early in my art career that was pivotal in my success I believe and I thought it would be cool to talk about it today because the the work of this person um, isn't online anymore he has removed everything of his from the internet and I was actually really bummed because I was going to link to it today (laughs) so in some ways it feels important to share it more at length in this podcast and share and spread some of his wisdom through my small channel if I can. So the um, artist I'm talking about is named Sean McCabe and you can still google him. Um, A google search of Sean McCabe kind of pulls up some of his more recent videos and some information about him taking a sabbatical and a pretty large break. I think he actually hit a substantial amount of burnout and made some pretty sweeping decisions in his life. And I can relate to that. It was partly why I took a step back from my business after Brayden was born. And he had a really lovely YouTube channel for a long time. And Shaman Cabe's story is really interesting. And the reason I was so drawn to his work is that he had a reverse relationship to work or a, a reverse a narrative arc <laughs> to his professional journey than I think most artists he started off in business he started off in marketing he had an MBA and while he was working in business he took a workshop in hand lettering and he loved it and he kept doing it and he got better and better and better and then eventually was doing hand lettering for Oprah magazine and you know lots of big things and he had this robust background in business. He was able to combine it with artistry, have a lot of success, but he also had a lot of passion for teaching that because he realized there was this niche that it's not intuitive to artists on how how to move forward in business. And his channel was awesome, awesome resource for artists who are interested in monetizing their work, having some type of public face with their work and he had a way of describing the tension and the difficulty with trying to marry the two right with trying to work with your passion and your soul and something bigger and your art kid he didn't use these terms right these are my terms but you know these sort of beautiful abstract ideas that I talk about in this podcast all the time and then he was able to marry them with the world that we have <laughs> right and to me i never run into anyone that was able to do that as well as he did and i am i'm honestly so sad that his channel's not there anymore but i want to talk to you about one of the more pivotal videos he did that i believe was a huge reason why i was able to have some success early on and the video is entitled how to keep your passion from um burning you out i'm paraphrasing i don't remember the exact title um but i suspect a lot of people who work in the arts immediately know of this risk i suspect even if your art is a hobby it's something that you protect vehemently no that's not the right word that you protect aggressively protect (laughs) from the outside world you know some people that's why art is a hobby it is it is a, a way of protecting the art from turning into an obligation a capitalistic obligation and that's not wrong this was one of the first things that I really appreciated about this video that he did he said no if you're nervous about putting your work out into The world and monetizing it, you're right to be nervous (laughs) because when you start paying your bills with the thing that you love, that your soul wants to do, um, you are in essence subjecting the thing that you love to this really toxic system. You know, there's that, that's not wrong to worry about, right? Like that's a very, um, real concern and and it happens to a lot of artists and he had this very beautiful and practical way of moving through this process and one of the components that he talked about I want to talk about today and that was the day job and this was illuminating for me because Up until listening to Sean McCabe talk about the day job, I was under the impression, and I suspect a lot of artists also are, that the day job is the antithesis of our artistry. Like, it's the thing that we should want to stop so that we can make our art. Like, the day job is taking us away from what we're here to do with our art kid, what we're here to do with something bigger that the day job is poison, (laughs) that the day job is part of the man. (laughs) All those things are true, right? This is an example of the both and. But what Sean McCabe said that I hadn't thought of was that if you choose it, the day job is a profound ally for your most authentic artistry. And I want to talk about that today because it was this root idea that I believe, allowed me to really connect with my art kid, really connect with something bigger and make things in tandem with them in a way that someone who jumps off the cliff, lets go of their day job. They're like, I'm going to, you know, and isn't that a story that's very seductive, right? Like, there's a lot to be said for that story. Um there's people that share that story. Um and their story is shared so often because it f- it feels very beautiful, right? Like, "I quit my day job, I moved across the country." This is a story that we like to hear from actors and actresses that are really famous in Hollywood, right? Like, "My parents thought I was crazy, but I quit my day job and I packed up my car and I drove to LA." And I like lived in my car and <laughs> whatever, and then and then now I'm famous and rich, and you could be too. Like that's a beautiful story. Um, for ninety nine point nine percent of people, that story ends up terribly, terribly. And Sean McCabe had this different story, and his story was, um, that the path to your most authentic artistry is not in spite of the day job, but because of the day job. (laughs) And I was smitten with this idea. So I want to start with, I want to start with his, he had, he had three steps. I'm pulling this from my memory, right? Because I, I wasn't able to reference the video before recording. But the first step in this process was finding Your passion. He called it passion. I want to connect it to some of the ideas in this podcast. And I would say, find your art kid. Finding your art kid is a huge way of finding your passion because your passion is connected with your kid. Your kid is the gatekeeper, not only of your relationship with something bigger, but also with your passion. The thing that you would do if nobody was watching, if nobody was paying you, right? That's your passion. That's what your kid is holding for you. And he believed, and I believe this too, that if you're going to have these the space and time to really reconnect with your kid and find your passion again, right? Because this isn't and finding and finding your passion is almost the wrong word. It's reconnecting with your passion. <laughs> you're born knowing your passions. My son came into this world connected to his passions even before he could sit up (laughs) even before he could use his hands, right? Like, um, and then of course we are immediately and rapidly exposed to all kinds of programming to the contrary of that. And so when we are so-called finding our passion, we're actually reconnecting with it. It's not a finding. It was never lost. It's always with us. And so, but he said, if you want to reconnect with your kid and your passion and something bigger, the first and most important thing, in his opinion, was having a day job. Uh, and I was like, say what? <laughs> really? Because to me, the day job is everything that my passion is not. And, he's, and he was like, no, hear me out. You need a day job. And it has to be a day job that pays all of your bills. Not some of your bills, not most of your bills all of your bills and if you can't find a day job that pays all of your bills then find two day j- two day jobs and that feels really messed up right like how am I gonna have time to do the thing I love how am I gonna have time to hang out with my kid to make art with something bigger like this is ridiculous like I I I'm wondering if there are people that listen to this podcast that work two jobs that work 60 70 hours a week um I don't talk about it nearly enough because for the last decade, I haven't had to do that. Prior to knowing my husband, I didn't know what it was like to have a day job that paid all my bills. <laughs> it's the state of the world that we're in. The mo- I suspect most of the people listening to this podcast um, don't have a day job that pays all their bills. That's the world that we're living in, y'all. I <laughs> I had a master's in education and if I wanted to be a school teacher in most states in this country, that day job, that teaching day job would not pay all my bills. Um, Most school teachers, um, and maybe this is a rude awakening for some of us that only have to work one job. Um, Your children's teachers, most of them probably have a second job. Like that's true. That's, it's very true, especially in Texas. (laughs) And so up until knowing jason up until having the privilege of his tech income i always had to work two jobs and this was a huge reason that i didn't connect with my art kid because it felt too painful i felt like i really needed time and it was revolutionary for me to discover and i talk about this more in the last episode that your kid doesn't actually need much time at all they just need your attention my kid was devastated by the fact that i ignored her (laughs) She didn't need me to have hours or even minutes a day for her. She just needed me to acknowledge that she existed, (laughs) right? But one of the reasons I ignored her was that I felt terrible, that I had no time for her. Um, And so this was really radical for me to hear McCabe talking about this. He's like, no, listen, you have to be able to pay your bills in order to do this first step so hear me out because we're going to move through his three steps and I want I want to take what resonates with you and leave the rest but I do think the beauty of his ideas are that they are perfect for somebody who doesn't have the privilege and that's most of us (laughs) to come home at night and work on our passions right so he said, "The first step is the day job, find something, pay all of your bills. Now, if you're you're if you're so-called one of the unlucky ones, and I don't really believe that that's the case in this model, but maybe you would feel a hundred percent rightfully so very unlucky if you had to work two jobs. Three jobs. Paying the bills is in McCabe's perspective. and now my perspective too, the protection for your kid. It is the vessel that is going to protect your kid, your passion from the outside world. And we're going to talk a little bit about this you know, in detail in a minute. But it's the protection. And when you have that protection in place, it is the most important thing. And here's why. Because when you come home at night... Even if you have five minutes with your kid, right? Like even if you're sitting down and doodling, and I'm gonna use drawing as an example, but this can apply to any creative thing that is passion passion inducing for you. <laughs> if you're sitting down with a one inch by one inch square of white paper and spending 60 seconds doodling on it before you go to bed and you're doing it in tandem with your kid, in tandem with something bigger. For me, that's... For me, y'all, for me, my art kid is a doodler, but for you, it could be literally anything. It could be throwing a few ingredients together in the kitchen and making yourself a creative little bite before you go to sleep. It could be... spending 10 minutes before you go to sleep tending a few potted plants that you have in the most nurturing way it could be taking a moment to like maybe you maybe your art kid is passionate about cosmetology and so you sit with yourself for 15 minutes before bed and you pamper yourself in the most holistic way with your like with your skin i i could list dozens of examples of this but the examples aren't what matters it's the feeling right like do you get a sense that you are doing the thing that you would do indefinitely even if no one was watching even if no one was paying you that's how you know that you've found your thing. And that's why find is the first step that McCabe talks about. For many of us, finding is really hard to do. (coughs) Because we don't have the protection of the day job. And this was really interesting for me. I listened to this video when I was working at Trader Joe's and Trader Joe's was beautiful it was an amazing job Um, it's like always considered taboo to talk about money directly so let's talk about money directly I got hired by Trader Joe's in 2014 and they were paying higher than the minimum wage at the time their base pay was $9 an hour which we all know is not enough but it was considered like forward thinking (laughs) Right to not pay seven, seventy five or whatever it is, because I had a master's in art education. When I got hired, they had they offered me thirteen, which was considered like amazing. Like I re- I remember quickly realizing I shouldn't talk about that with the- my coworkers because many of them were afforded that privilege, and still, you know I felt lucky to get offered thirteen. 13 an hour is about 27,000 a year in Austin that's laughable but I told myself well I'll just use my art making on the side and I'll take commissions and stuff to pay the rest of my bills and immediately what I was doing was I was subjecting my kid <laughs> <laughs> and art was something bigger to the stresses of feeding myself and it was a huge mistake It was a huge problem. And because of that, I wasn't actually really finding my passion or the thing that I was really here to do. That type of work can only happen when you have a safe relationship with your kid and something bigger. And I did not have that because I wasn't paying my bills. And once I watched this video... Uh, it, it's when I left Trader Joe's and I went back to waiting tables and fine dining. And I remember when I had that conversation with my parents, I was 35 year old with a master just going back to waiting tables and they didn't get it. <laughs> and I said, no, no, trust me. This is important because I was able to work three days a week, four days a week, paying my bills in a fine dining establishment And the shift was huge. Immediately I had a safe container for my art making that was that was non-existent before. And McCabe is correct, like the day job, the day job that pays the bills, if it's multiple jobs, whatever, is important. And if you have to do two or three jobs, that's let's just be honest, that's so fucked up. The F word is important there. That's so fucked up. It's one of the reasons why the planet isn't making the stuff that it should be making fast enough because most of its people can't. Um, Richard Feynman. Richard is it his first name? Richard Feynman. I think so. Famous physicist, and I'm paraphrasing heavily right now, but he has a famous quote where he's, he basically says the thing that keeps him up at night isn't necessarily physics and problems of physics. It's how many brilliant physicists are out there, you know, in a field somewhere doing slave labor 80 hours a week and their ideas aren't getting into the world. Like that's what keeps him up at night. That's <clears throat> That's the world that we have. And so McCabe's assertion is, if this is the world that we have, I want to tell those people that to the extent that you're able, find a way to pay your bills. And then even if you're only working with your passion five minutes a day, that's better. That's where we start. Maybe it feels like a very unsexy starting place. Um, For me, my starting place was sexier than most. And still I got so much flack for it. You know, I remember friends and family being like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you have an advanced degree. Um, you know, you're your Trader Joe's had fabulous health insurance. Like I was leaving that <laughs> to um to go to this other thing that it didn't make sense. In some ways, right? The day job in some ways feels unsexy. And from a really protective vantage point, it's so huge in protecting your art kid. And your art was something bigger. Elizabeth Gilbert talks a lot about this. That she wished that she had waited tables even longer than she did. I think she was. She said, if I recall correctly, she was still waiting tables when she wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Like she said, and and so I want to kind of m- use her example to move into the second step of McCabe's video, which is once you f- have found the thing and you have the day job then you have this protective relationship and in the protective relationship you can be radical and Gilbert talked about this like when you are paying your bills with people eating like just for example people eating at a table and they're like tipping you and then your art doesn't have to change itself for anybody else here's the thing that we forget and I had I had forgotten it too when I was using art to pay my bills while I was at Trader Joe's if your art is paying your bills then your art is constantly being subject to change right like I remember while I was at Trader Joe's getting an email from a former sorority sister of mine when I was in college and she Um, worked for a cool small business in Ohio um, and they were looking for a t-shirt design for their upcoming summer season and I really didn't want to really didn't want to do it it wasn't that it was a bad gig it actually was going to pay really well Um, it was just completely out of alignment with what I wanted to do with my art right like my art kid was immediately like snooze you know this. and but you know like there's this idea of like well I'm an artist and I need to pay my bills so I guess I'm gonna do this thing and so I did and I hated it I hated it I actually was really embarrassed by what I sent them it wasn't very good they ended up having to have another designer like retweak it. And because she and I were friends, she was so gracious about it. Like she didn't you know, make me feel bad or anything. But I remember being like, oh, this is so messed up. Like I should have said no to this, but I needed the money. And when you subject the work that you're doing to that world, you immediately start down this slippery slope of compromise and compromise is toxic to your kid. It's toxic to something bigger, right? And the day job is the most beautiful protection from that. When I started waiting tables again, it allowed me to do the craziest stuff. Y'all, I've talked about this, you know, a few episodes back. Um, I made a coloring book, right? Like that was such a weird, um, non-traditional thing to do. (laughs) And you know what? It didn't matter if it made no money, Because I didn't need it to make any money. And it ended up, of course, doing exceptionally well. Um, But if it hadn't, and there were dozens and dozens of things, by the way, that I did do that also made no money. And it didn't matter because I was paying my bills with serving. This was revolutionary to me. It was the beginning of my understanding to how the day job was a profound ally in my most authentic work. So find, protect, and the last step he talked about was: it is at that point and that point only, after you've had a long and robust relationship between finding and protecting, finding and protecting, finding and protecting, that you can begin to consider towing the waters of monetization. And I remember him talking about how skeptical he was for a really long time with monetization because monetization is the the phase where you start introducing your kid and making art with something bigger to the forces of the economy that we have. And it took me a while to honestly have the courage to do that. I waited tables as long as I could. And then I remember finally getting a a call from HEB, which for some some of my national or international listeners maybe isn't familiar, but it's a very prominent grocer in Texas, very loved business. Um, I adored working with them. They're incredibly supportive of independent makers. And also independent producers and local producers of, of the food system they're just really really fascinating business if you ever get a chance to read up on HEV and I I got an opportunity to design some reusable bags for them um, and they needed it fast and were willing to pay you know like triple my you know rate to get it and I was waiting tables four days a week and I it was at that point that I realized I, I think I need to jump now because <laughs> I had so much other art stuff going on with the coloring book and galleries and markets. And, and because I had been for about two years toggling back and forth between step one and step two of finding and protecting with my day job, I felt like mostly safe <laughs> to jump into step three. And it it, it kind of worked. Um, It kind of worked. And I say kind of because honestly, if it hadn't been for Jason and living with him at that time, I probably would have stayed in steps one and two for as long as I possibly could have. Like as many more years. I remember Jason and I having this very honest conversation where he said, you know, if there ever comes a point where you're not contributing to the household, that's fine. But what what can never happen is that our household can't be bailing your business out, you know. And it, it never happens, you know. We never had to bail it out. But because I had the knowledge of not worrying about starving, <laughs> we were able to do this. I was able to do this. Um, and... I always feel a little weird telling that story and also feel like it's important to tell. I remember, you know, I don't think, I think sometimes people that have a lot of privilege feel embarrassed to share that. Um, and maybe I have more comfort with sharing that because I worked so many jobs before knowing Jason <laughs> and, knowing how much it meant to me to hear people call out their own circumstances like that so that I felt less crazy, right? Because there was a period of time where I was scrapping hard and, you know, wondering why I couldn't get ahead as fast as I thought I should be able to. And it's because the system is this way, you know? I remember this local journalist coming to our apartment while I was living with Jason and he wanted to talk with me because at that time I was working for different things like I was still waiting tables but then I also you know had a retail business I was taking clients and I was teaching at Laguna Gloria and the article was about the gig economy and I don't remember how this journalist found me specifically um but I think he found my it's like an article that I was writing in my blog about this experience and so he wanted to come talk to me about it. He brought a photographer. He came to our place and yeah, we were living in a really nice townhouse style apartment close to the greenbelt because Jason works as an engineer. <laughs> like and I I remember as he was like kind of telling me some of the other people he was working with, I realized, "Oh, I'm not the right person for you to talk to for this article." Like, yes, Yes, I'm I'm scrappy. Yes, I'm doing four jobs. But um, at the end of the day, I have this safety net that the other people in your article don't have. And, you know, I was pretty candid with him about that. And I remember there was this weird energy that was coming from him that ended up, it actually really hurt. It was the first time ever in my life where, you know, someone who was still in that scrapping phase, I'm sure he chose to write an article about this because he was doing the same thing. He was immersed in the gig economy. He was not paying his bills with journalism. He had many jobs. And so he was very passionate about exploring this topic and writing about it. And there was some disdain that was unmistakable. (laughs) as we were talking that he was kind of shooting towards me um and i don't i don't know if i blame him the the people he talked to before me like i remember him and he probably kind of wanted me to know this like i remember him pointedly telling me yeah we just came from home depot talking to the day laborers that stand outside i'm not sure if this is common nationally but in austin there's this interesting relationship that Home Depot has with day laborers and most of them are undocumented immigrants and they will come and they'll stand just off the property of Home Depot (laughs) and they'll just kind of hang out in a group and people that have day work know that they'll they can find them there and they can come and be like hey like I'll pay you this rate to help me shovel for an hour or whatever that was who he interviewed before me right and I I remember feeling a lot of feelings and some of the feelings I had admittedly was shame, like, wow, you know, um, I, and I, I think, yeah, I think he was kind of like, this isn't going to make it to the article. And I remember he didn't even send me, (laughs) um, he told me, I'm going to email you when, when it's published. And he didn't. And, uh, The only reason that I even saw the article is because I happened to be at like an independent grocer near our house. And I saw it was a cover article for this independent magazine. And so I saw it like on the cover of a magazine in the checkout line. So I immediately bought the magazine and there was zero mention. I think they had my face. Like, I think they took a picture of me. There was zero mention of my work or anything I said in the entire article. And I... And it it kind of solidified my resolve to continue to talk about my experience and circumstances because in some ways I know what it feels like to scrap and in other ways I really don't. I really don't. Um, But I, I think that that's one of the reasons I loved the day job component of what we're talking about. Because up until this episode, I I know that a lot of the things that I've been recording have been beautiful. I've, I get these beautiful emails from people that listen. I know that the ideas are meaningful. I think they're important to talk about. And also, I generally record and talk about them in a really idealistic, figurative, <laughs> imaginative way that is disconnected from what what's happening. And what's happening right now is that most of us are trying to just feed ourselves. And how in the world do we make art with something bigger in that system? And I'm hoping that maybe there'll be a nice mix this year in the podcast of talking about the more idealistic aspects that are really important, I think, in moving forward as artists in the time that we're living in while also acknowledging that there's some really hard stuff too. And it's not helpful to just talk about one, you know? I think that's where the toxic positivity <laughs> movement has started to really gain foothold there's a lot of people with really beautiful ideas about how we can proceed um, individually and collectively and there is this fragmentation in a lot of their work often and there was in mine too of from the real world and You know, I don't know if I love the term real world because it makes it suggest that the the shitty parts of the world are what's real and the idealistic parts with our kid and something bigger are just airy-fairy and not real. And in fact, I think it's the other way. (laughs) But I was thrilled. I was thrilled to discover that there was a both-and with the capitalist model that we are living in. Because prior to listening to McCabe's work on the day job, I was under the impression that the work that I was going to try to do as an artist was to extricate myself from the world that I was living in to as much as possible. And this is a really bohemian idea. It's why there's lots of artists that are like, trying to make their work happen without involving the man, (laughs) you know? Um, I suppose when I think about artists that are trying to do that, I think about, you know, people crammed into, like as many artists as possible crammed into a tiny New York apartment and, you know, sitting around extrapolating upon ideas and, you know, trying to, you know, and, and making stuff in... Their space away from the world, and then trying to put it out there in any avenue that they can. Right, like going to galleries. Um, and that that's it's. I actually have met some artists that have had that work. It's um probably not fair for me to say that the day job is the only inroad to making your most authentic work I have some friends here in Austin who I've I shared McCabe's video with back when it was still up online and they it was a couple friend of mine who does murals and they have this incredibly successful mural business and I remember them saying oh but that's what we did we just both quit our day jobs and threw ourselves into it and I remember being like oh <laughs> well never mind and then also looking back you know there was this huge phase of saving money that they went through before they did that and that they had the privilege to do that. And so even though they didn't have the day job money coming in, they had a safety net that was also acting as a protection for their passion. Find, protect, and maybe monetize. I, I've i been sharing this episode about day jobs as a potential avenue to monetization but maybe monetization should be acknowledged for what it is and that is not for everybody. I was listening to a video the other day by Mark Manson and I don't know if I <laughs> love everything Mark Manson says or the energy he has um but he ha- but what I will say about Manson is that he has interesting ideas. I always feel like his way of looking at things is refreshingly different than almost anybody else. And that rarity is what draws me to listening to him from time to time. And he was talking a lot about how, um, we, oh, I lost the thread <laughs> that we are, oh, I'm going to have to circle back around to that. Is I, I have to say that I've not ever lost a thread in this podcast until just now. Like so utterly and totally. Usually it just takes like a five-second pause and it'll come back. <clears throat> um, <laughs> sorry, y'all. Um, I, I will say that we are in this space and time where the day job is in many ways a sort of unrecognized ally for many artists because we think about where we want to go and i think a lot of artists have an easier time of thinking about where where we should go because interestingly most artists are also able to imagine outside of systems really well. Um, it's hard for a lot of people to imagine a world without capitalism, but for many artists, I think it is very easy. <laughs> you know, like it's one of the reasons why um, artistry is a huge part of our future. Daniel Pink wrote Why the Right Brainers Are Going to Rule the, f- the Future. <laughs> <laughs> because right brainers and artists are so good at imagining what we don't have. The thing that artists really struggle with is imagining how to marry <laughs> what we think we should have with what we do have, right? And I suspect that that's part of the reason why artists don't think about the systems that we have being helpful at all. You know, that there's a sense that we just need to dump this old crap and move forward. And if I've learned anything from being married to a very realistic, very, um, pragmatic, (laughs) um, practical human, like my engineer husband, (laughs) (laughs) it's that, um, there is a Huge both and opportunity with the old and the new. That we are moving into a future with both of these things. That the old, that there's a sense that the old system just needs to like fall into a pit and like burn. <laughs> and we're just gonna like fly off into the sunset without it. I suspect that our future is going to be. A lot less clean <laughs> and that's not necessarily a negative thing by the way right that the old stuff is going to maybe maybe it's not going to flame out the way that we hope it's just going to slowly get absorbed into the new kind of like a warm soup or something It's an interesting metaphor for secret sauce. And if that's true, and I like to think that it is, then bringing along components of the system that we have as as an ally is important. I, I don't know if much more than that is necessary to know in the beginning. I remember I watched this video by McCabe and I remember thinking, gosh, I really want more information. Like, okay, so then you monetize your work, then what? And he had a lot of other videos about that that I actually didn't watch because (laughs) in a lot of ways, the steps that come after step three Are really personal and unique to each of us. But I do believe strongly that in many instances, the most meaningful and profound radical artistry comes from, must come from a very protected space. And for better or for worse, right now, In the world that we have, one of the most effective ways that we have, one of the most effective tools that we have to protect our work and protect our kids and protect making with something bigger is through the day job, is through paying our bills. I mentioned this in the last episode, but I'll mention it again. Your kid needs you to eat. They need you to feel as little day-to-day stress as possible. I, You know, I wonder if that's why the system is in some ways designed to only work for a few people, right? Because disempowering the majority of the planet's citizens from being able to connect with their kids and their authentic work is in some ways, a power move. In a lot of ways, a power move. Um, that's, That's the disease that we're fighting. It can be really easy to imagine that we're fighting the fever stuff, right? Like, that it's about all of these other little tiny things, like, oh, it's about bigotry. Oh, it's about Religion, oh, it's about education. Um, those are all the fevers, you know. The diseases, power, it's and money. Those are. That's. That's the root, you know. When you, start, working, through these three steps, and prioritizing a relationship with your most authentic making through protection. You are in some ways being more radical than you realize. And in fact, in a lot of ways, you're being more radical than you realize. There's a picture of what we think radical looks like. And a lot of it probably has been taught to us by the media. And it's not to say that radical doesn't look like going in the streets with signs and yelling. Um depending on the circumstances, that's very radical, you know, but I suppose we've i suppose I believe we've been doing a disservice to a lot of people, especially our artists um by being unable to recognize the radical nature of this inner creative work when you are at home for five minutes after an exhausting day working 14 hours or whatever if you're tapping in on a daily basis even for five minutes with your kid I mean that (laughs) that's radical it doesn't feel radical though right um until you zoom out and that's not something we get the luxury of doing in these bodies but yeah I was thinking a little bit about this because there's an artist from the Columbus area in Ohio where I'm from and I used to teach this artist to my students in fourth grade her name is Amina Robinson and you should google her work if you've not heard of her because her work is so gorgeous and she Worked in all different things, but she became really famous for this particular style she worked in for a period of time, and she called it ragganons, and they were these textile works that were really long <laughs> and would wrap around rooms. And, they, and she called them raganons because they ragged on and on, and they were based on this idea that they were based on this idea of ancestry that we are constantly adding to the artwork of those before us and the work rags on and on and on. And there's a sense when you're looking at her work, like there'll be this sort of textile, um, stitching together of a bunch of different colors. And then all of a sudden there'll be like a yellow button (laughs) just kind of come out of nowhere and that doesn't really feel transformative at all right it's just like this single yellow shock of color <laughs> in the midst of all these other darker colors for example but then that shock of yellow <laughs> leads to another button and another and another and suddenly because you're zoomed out away from the aganon because you get this perspective really far back you see the way that that one little tiny thing leads to another leads to another leads to another that 5 minutes in your bathroom with like with a book that you with a book that you're writing or or something you know like that 5 minutes in the car like taking down some notes for a poem that you have you know banging around in your brain that's the yellow button, right? It's the thing that doesn't seem to matter at all until generations from now. And I suppose that feels less sexy in some ways because I I think a lot of us probably hope that if we're doing the work that we most want to do, that we're going to have a certain kind of reward. And This is the beauty of the art kid, is that when you're really making with your kid, you also get to benefit from their mentality around this. And their mentality is, I don't give a shit about the reward. (laughs) I am so happy getting to do this. The reward is in the doing. It's one of the ways I know that I'm really in tandem with my kid, by the way is when I stop wondering if I'm going to make a bunch of money or get a bunch of attention or if a lot of people are going to listen to this podcast one day. I really want them to, by the way. (laughs) And it's how I knew that my kid was a huge part of this podcast because I am so excited to record this podcast every week, and I have zero idea if anyone will listen to it one day. I'm always shocked at how many people listen to these episodes Um, considering I market it, not at all. Um, But if my kid wasn't here, and she didn't used to be, (laughs) she wasn't part of the podcast as much when I first started recording it. And it's why I was more sporadic, right? Because I would kind of expect a certain extrinsic reward each time I recorded. And then if it didn't come, I would feel less motivated later now, she's really here now, and so just the talking is the reward. And it takes away some of the despair of five minutes of art at night. If that's where you're at, keep plugging away, keep searching for your kid, because when they show up, you will experience the reward immediately right even if it's five minutes before bed you will experience healing and joy and pleasure in the moment and it doesn't by the way it doesn't mean (laughs) that suddenly everything becomes unicorns and rainbows right um There have been many days where I sit down to record this podcast and I experience all the things that I just talked about. And also, there's a ton of crap going on. It's really hard and I'm really sad. Like, there is a tremendous both and that can occur. But I know when my kid is here because the reward is in the moment. And it takes away some of the despair of wondering, what what if I don't? Make a difference. Later. Well, it's really cool because I'm actually not trying to make a difference later. That's what's so radical about working with the kid. I'm actually just making a difference now in my day. (laughs) The rest of my day is going to be so much better. Because I recorded this. And that's it. And that's all that I'm doing. And. In a world that's telling us to always think about later, and what are you going to get, and who are you going to reach, that's radical. It makes me emotional just thinking about it. Okay. This podcast ragged on and on just like an Amina Robinson work. (laughs) But... I hope it provides some comfort for anybody who feels like, what am I doing? I'm working this job. Like I'm working these two jobs. I take what resonates with you and leave the rest. But there is profound, radical work happening with so many people who have no idea. It's like one of my goals of this podcast is to reframe some of the stories that we tell ourselves around the stuff that we're doing, right? There's a sense that if we're doing something meaningful that we, you know, look more like Toni Morrison or something like winning like big awards and stuff, like um, that's that's not where the magic happened for Tony, by the way. Like this is something I'm learning from listening to her. By the way, if you, if you ever just want to feel really amazing, listen to Tony Morrison talk about making art. (laughs) She's, you know, the magic wasn't happening when she was winning the Nobel prize or whatever. The magic was happening when she was working two or three jobs and scrapping and raising a bunch of kids and scrapping together five minutes a day to write down something with her kid. That's where it was happening, right? And thank goodness she didn't believe those bullshit narratives telling her that she wasn't making a difference because that's when the difference was happening, right? And yeah, she got all of the cool awards later. I remember listening to her talking to Oprah about that. Oprah like, asked her, oh, like tell us about winning the thing. Tell us about meeting the president. And she she very politely <laughs> put put like this, metaphorical hand in Oprah's face. And she's like, it's not about that. She's like, I don't, I don't even really want to talk about that. Like that's not where the cool stuff was for me. And it, you should just go, I, like, I don't want to paraphrase what she said to Oprah. You should just go Google that because it was beautiful. Um, she said, if I talk about the award and meeting the president, I know that it's going to give all of these young makers the impression that that's the, the goal She's like, yeah, I guess I was lucky, but I actually don't give a shit about that. Like, the real thing I care about was the work, and those extra things just—they're part of a toxic culture that I don't really want to be a part of anyway. Um, it's not that she wasn't grateful, right? Like, I think it—you me- know—meant a lot to her that people felt persuaded and and inspired to honor her efforts. But there was also this knowing that she had around the frosting that is those types of experiences. And I, I'm comforted by that when I'm in the shit. Um, when I'm trying to scrape together some time to make art with my kid and pay my bills and raise my human kid. <laughs> and, and feeling overwhelmed by that and then knowing that there are so many women and men. In the world who are um, carrying a load three, four, five, ten times more than mine. How can we honor those people and the two or three minutes that they're scraping together to make their most meaningful stuff? I, I, I don't know if this podcast is going to be able to do that. And I'm glad that I'm with my kid because she doesn't care if it does (laughs) she's just having a blast doing this thing and that is the most sustainable energy because it is how i show up every day (sighs) until next time the day job embrace it love it Recognize it for what it is. It is is an ally and it is toxic. And you get to choose. And it's in the choosing that you can find your liberation. Your crazy boss, your disenfranchised colleagues, (laughs) your unappreciated labor, all of that can feel like a blessing when you see the ways that it's protecting your most meaningful work. Until next time, I love y'all. Peace.